Reseed is a podcast about repairing and reimagining a relationship to nature and each other. Reseed tells the stories of a regeneration, the people embracing repair, redesign, reuse, and reduction. The people who are uprooting the extractive status quo and rooting the future in justice, well-being, resilience, and care. I am Alice Irene Whitaker, the host of Reseed. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers. Welcome. Today, I speak with Stephen Lovett, a birder, writer, critic, parent, and teacher based in South Wales. Together, we talk about our human connection with birds and about the birds who are no longer here and what that brings up in us. We ask, how do you fight the tyranny of clocks to make space for imagination? Here, as I say, Britain is very nature depleted. So it's still a strange experience to, to walk through some farmland and expect to see certain kinds of birds, tree sparrows, yellow hammers, corn bunting. And, and they're not there. I, I miss them. It's I can I look at a telegraph pole or a post or something, and that's the place where a, such and such a bird ought to be. <laughs> and, it's, and its absence is very loud. We all have times of silence. When momentum slows down, or we turn inwards, or we cannot rush and produce, maybe we choose to simply sit. These quiet times can allow us to heal and rest, but they can also lead to big changes, like a seed underground in this cold, dark winter. As we watch war and greed and destruction of our earth grow, seemingly without check, taking times of silence can be one essential tool for restoring our energy and then changing how we are directing that energy to tackle oppression or extraction. It's counterintuitive, but those moments of quiet, of silence, really can help us fight back, and it's just not possible to keep going loudly all the time. Today's guest, Stephen Lovett, wrote a beautiful memoir about a time of silence. His book, Birdsong in a Time of Silence, details the life of his young family through the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when he, like many of us, once again noticed the sound of birdsong. As he wrote, Finally, the earth could hear itself think and the voice of its thought was song. Like so many of us, Stephen paid more attention to nature, and in his case, that meant turning to bird watching, rekindling a childhood love. Of course, there was the love of returning to this passion for birds, as well as the heartbreak of the birds that are endangered or no longer here. It struck me that he dedicated his book to those imprisoned who cannot hear birdsong. And that, to me, speaks to the connections that this book weaves between birds during pandemic lockdown and his personal story, and the bigger issues happening in nature and around the world. This is a really rich conversation, ranging from poetry to parenting. We ask about what is endangered in our society beyond birds, like subtlety and discourse, for example. We dig deep into the roots of being human and wonder about what we can recover and regenerate. And finally, we talk a lot about imagination, one of those sweet fruits that comes from times of silence. 
Here is my conversation with Stephen Lovett. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, I'm sorry. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you about your relationship with nature as a child and what that was like. Well, the weather when I was born was similar to now. It was 1976, and I don't know what what the weather was like in Canada that year, but in Europe it was a big heat wave year. I think it was the hottest year to date, um, maybe until very recently, when hot years have, of course, become the norm. So I was outside a lot. As, a, as an infant. Apparently I was put in a carry cot in the back garden of this suburban house in Birmingham, um, in England, which my parents had, had just bought. It was the first house they ever owned. So I was just outside, I think under a uh, flowering cherry or some sort of tree. Uh, and I guess I just spent a lot of time looking at the sun. And when I was indoors, I think my earliest memory is of just watching the, the dust motes, you know, in the sunbeams, mm-hmm. um, you know, very, very tranquil. And then my parents weren't into bird watching as such. I sort of got them into that later. They, they supported my interest in that when I was about six or seven. And through supporting my interest, they became interested themselves. And it, kind of, it went on from there. But even though we lived in Birmingham, which is a which is a big city, um, we were in the suburbs and we had access to some beautiful parks. So yeah, we spent a lot of time you know, in those parks and in, in the nature reserves nearby. And I, I went through the usual kind of childhood enthusiasms, um, like cars, and, I don't know, warplanes, all, all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Um, but for some reason, it was birds and nature that, that, that stuck, and I don't really know why that is. Can you tell me about the rediscovery of birds? I've uh, read from uh, the beginning of your book and about your book online that you, during the pandemic, had this rediscovery uh, and this renewed relationship with birds. Can you tell me about how that happened? To some extent, that's a marketing conceit. (laughs) You know, they they needed a hook for the book. Um, So at the time, the pandemic, you know, approached over the horizon. Um, I'd been talking to an agent for a while and I, I had something, I had some, some words written about birds, birds and birding, but they, they were looking for sort of an angle on it. And so right. from, that, from that very narrow point of view, the pandemic was a sort of ironic godsend. Because it, it, it gave them that, you know, that angle. But it isn't only that, I mean, just, just in the common sense way, because, because we didn't work, because uh, we couldn't travel much, in my case, as in many cases, I think you'd, you you were allowed to spend more time just just using your senses, <laughs> just listening and looking, um, and there wasn't a great deal to do. So, you sat in your backyard, and you kind of became aware of what was coming to you, instead of you dashing here and there, you know, right. according to the demands of the, the capitalist machine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, which so, for for a brief moment seemed to pause. <laughs> yeah, which was which was really nice in lots of ways. I mean, you know, something I, I have to emphasize, you know, I know that the pandemic was was, you know, absolutely miserable for millions and millions of people. So um it's obviously impossible to kind of generalize one kind of experience. Um our family's experience of the pandemic, um, you know, luckily was was actually very positive for, for the reasons I've I've given. But uh, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. 
Oh, of course. Well, there are so many valid experiences of it. And I think it, it was such a complicated time and continues to be where those things sit together, right? Like there was the suffering, the fear, also the relief and the, you know, for a moment there, like maybe we'll change what we're doing and how we're being. Yeah, it was definitely, there was much talk about in the press, wasn't there, that this might be some sort of reset. But I guess the machine's mm-hmm. very powerful. Right. But I'd like to think that some of the legacies of, of that, that pause in the machine are still with us. S- certainly mm-hmm. it gave a boost to kind of commercial nature writing, you know, for, for, for better or worse, probably for better and worse in different ways over here and, and made more people aware perhaps that they had been you know, living without properly noticing what was going on around them. So, so I'd mm-hmm. like to think that a lot of people, myself included, um, had a glimpse of what it would be like if we slowed down a little and have been actively trying to seek out that condition more since. I think so too. And I'm wondering why you think bird watching in particular and our awareness of birds did have such a resurgence during the pandemic. I guess because you don't need much equipment to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, bird watching covers a, like a, a broad spectrum. Right? I mean, there's the professional right. twitchers who, you know, go out with lots of equipment um, and are constantly getting pings on their apps. That's such and such a bird is such and such a place. Right. And then, and then there's just the person who sits out on their balcony and, and maybe for the first time in a long time kind of wonders what that sound is and then, and has mm-hmm. the leisure to kind of stay there and wait and see what's making that sound instead of having to, you know, neck some coffee and go to the office. Right. Um, so I think if, if we consider um, birding in a very kind of ordinary amateur sense, which it you know, should be, um, mm-hmm. then it was just one department of an enlarged sensibility that was permitted by the conditions. Can you tell me about your relationship with birding? Like, what does it look like? What, are you sitting on your balcony and sort of just allowing what comes past you to come past? Or do you go out very intentionally? Bring me into that that world when you go out. I still don't do much of it. I, you know, I'm the father of three relatively young children. Um, oh, me too. I'm the mother of three oh, relatively young children. Okay, so, right, I, so you know exactly how it is. I understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, mine are uh, eight, five, and three. Okay, you've put me on the spot now. Five, ten, and thirty. Okay. So. Yes. Yes, right, I but... understand the uh, <laughs> the the daily realities. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a different sort of pleasure, um, but it's not necessarily conducive to going out on your own, unless you make yourself unpopular with your partner. Right. <laughs> which, which I obviously try not to do. Um, so I I went bird watching in the kind of commonly understood sense quite a lot in my teens. Um, I guess between seven and 19. Um, and then, you know, adulthood and its responsibilities kicked in. And it, it's something I just checked in with from time to time, especially when I visited my father, because my father was really into it by then. So if mm-hmm. I met up with my dad a couple of times a year, we might go, go bird watching. But it was very much on the sort of back burner until the book and until the pandemic. And, and even now, I don't get out as much as I would perhaps like. I've got a like mm-hmm. you know quote unquote proper job. I've got, I've got <laughs> a few a few of those. Um, but when I do go out, where I live in Swansea, we're right next to this peninsula that juts out into the Irish Sea. Oh, beautiful! Which is the Gower Peninsula. I think it was the first nature reserve in the UK actually, and it's still 
even though it's very depleted in nature like the rest of the UK is, um, it's still very beautiful and it's still got patches of abundance and variety. In terms of the things you can see, there's a very rich uh, range of habitats, um, mudflats, salt marsh, um, woodland fields. So you do get a lot of bird species there. And so when I do go, that's that's kind of where I go. And I, I walk along the north coast of this peninsula between the woods and the marsh. Um, yeah, I just take my binoculars. Uh, I, I need to take a lot of food because I have the, the metabolism of a rodent and I just need to eat <laughs> really often. <laughs> and I take my money in case I pass a pub or a cafe. Um, mm -hmm. And I, Yeah, and I just... Um, I guess because I, I went bird watching a lot as a kid, I now have a certain sort of expectation of what's likely to be in a particular habitat. So if I'm looking out over the marsh, you know, I expect red shanks to be in the creeks and I'm looking, I'm checking out the posts in case there's a Merlin, chicken hawk in North America, right? Merlin okay, or a yeah. kestrel on, on the post and I'm scanning the far horizon in case there's a hen harrier out there. So you sort of, you come with these, uh, the landscape is sort of pre-populated by the imagination. Mm. <laughs> um, but but then it's always surprising as well because you, you never know of course whether that stuff will be there or not and there's always the possibility that you know you'll you'll meet with something unexpected right and have you seen that change over your time like since childhood to now like what's in your imagination and what you're expecting from childhood is it still there has it changed over the decades i, I think the expectations are are still there but they're not necessarily met by the reality now so you know i mentioned mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know the situation in canada but here as i say britain is very nature depleted so it's still a strange experience to, to walk through some farmland and expect to see certain kinds of birds tree sparrows yellow hammers corn hunting and, and they're not there and and it's not just that you can't see them they're, they're really not there <laughs> they've mm. gone they've gone completely um so that yeah, that is still a shock every time, really, having to adjust your expectations to that. Yeah, how does that make you feel, like, to for them not to be there? Because they sort of should be there, and because they always used to be there, the absence is very strong. The absence is like a presence, if I can put it. I don't, mm. I don't want to come over all high-flying and metaphysical, but it's like that. You know, I, I miss them. It's I can I look at a telegraph pole or a post or something, and that's the place where a, such and such a bird ought to be. <laughs> and, right. it's, and its absence is very loud. Hmm. Is, mm -hmm. is it the same with you in Canada? Where are you? It, Canada's it, very large. Where are it you? Is, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is very large, and we are so blessed with an abundance of nature and and so much space uh, so there there are pockets of abundance and biodiversity but it's ever dwindling you know there's always more sprawl there are more forests coming down and with them all of their species including birds and uh, birds face a number of threats and are dwindling across north america more and more as well so we are fortunate to have you know quote wild spaces and nature but they're very much under threat so 
uh, that's really, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and just seeing it happen in real time, seeing, you know, again and again, the approval of, a, you know, new developments and taking away treasured land, for example, uh, is really hard. Yeah. And especially, you know, when we should be doing exactly the opposite right now, we should be rewilding it and protecting what we have. is a time of silence, or it can be. In her resonant book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, Catherine May writes about the benefits of winter and how nature has periods where she flourishes, as well as periods where she pairs back to the very basics of existence to survive. Catherine explores those times in our lives when we face dark days and maybe retreat from work or social life. She writes about how she learned the hard way that sometimes you need to give in to winter seasons. Here's advice she wrote. When I started feeling the drag of winter, I began to treat myself like a favored child, with kindness and love. I assumed my needs were reasonable and that my feelings were signals of something important. I kept myself well-fed and made sure I was getting enough sleep. I took myself for walks in the fresh air and spent time doing things that soothed me. I asked myself, what is this winter all about? I asked myself, what change is coming? Trisha Hersey, the visionary creator of the Nap Ministry, has helped me and many others see how rest can be an act of liberation. Remember, and I care about this so much, that care and rest, though they sound gentle, do not need to be toothless. They are really powerful tools in tackling and undermining oppressive systems. Trisha recently published a rest deck that I keep on my nightstand, and it's filled with flashcards that impart deep wisdom about rest. One of my favorites is, I am not a machine, I am a divine human being. Or the one that simply says, I am not lazy dispelling the myth that to rest and be free is laziness. Finally, one that speaks to me says, Rest is my foundation to build, invest, restore, and imagine the world I want to see. I struggle with letting myself rest, as I've talked about before, but I'm grateful for wise thinkers like Trisha and Catherine, who can help me learn and also help me see that this struggle is not my own shortcoming and not yours, but rather a chronic issue that we all face because we've been taught that our worth comes from productivity. I'm really leaning into my winter right now. The soil that is resting, the seeds that are dreaming, the changes that are coming. Is there anything, is there kind of a growing counter movement about this? Is there like a kind of permaculture, like small farming, organic farming movement? The, I would say yes. I mean, absolutely there is. And a lot of times on this podcast, I interview people who are part of that movement. And I would say 
like many places it is certainly growing all the time but i guess it comes back to what you say about the the machine is powerful right so it's there is this beautiful movement and you know resurgence of connection to nature and embracing all of these practices like regenerative farming uh, and then on the other side of course there's the machine which plows ahead yeah. so that's uh, you know, I think pretty universal right now. One of the one of the machine's kind of greatest weapons is that it it it, uh, it makes you it convinces you that there's no alternative. So it's it's really good. So it, even even if it seems sometimes like it's farming for wildlife and regenerative farming is it, small, it's it's so important, isn't it? Because it shows you that it doesn't have to be the way that you're told it has to. That's such a good point. And yeah, it brings, you really do need to see it. You need to see what it looks like and what those alternatives are. And I, I think that's when I feel, because there is so much despair, but that's when I do feel those glimmers of hope is when you see a space that has been rewilded and come back to, you know, bird species that haven't been there for decades return. Like that's the type of thing that is so powerful. And, and you're right. I do think that the, the antidote to the machine is not going to be like one big thing, but all of these smaller local resurgences that are like a patchwork that are driven by individual places and people. Yeah, and if there's enough of that, then people will discover you know, how rewarding it is. And after mm -hmm. all, you know, a lot of people aren't, aren't happy in the machine. <laughs> they just they just don't know anything, right. don't know anything different. True. And that's, that's growing too, right? The dissatisfaction with the system and how it currently is and the acknowledgement of that. Is there a growing movement where you are, would you say, against the, against the machine and towards other practices and other ways of being? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. Um, I have friends who are quite heavily involved in, uh, in green farming and in rewilding. And yeah, it's getting a lot more attention than it did even 10 years ago. Um, a friend of mine who lives, who lives in Southwest England was telling me recently that there was um, like a nationwide permaculture conference. Uh, and by coincidence, it was the same weekend as the National Farmers Union conference, which was you know, nearby in the next county or something. And she said that had that occurred 10 years ago, you would have had completely different speakers at each event. There would have been no cross-fertilization, if that's right. the metaphor. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no overlap at all. And she, and she was stressing how hopeful a sign it is that, um, in, in fact, many speakers were at the same conference and, and, and kind of the need to farm for wildlife, the need to farm sustainably, seems to be entering a sort of mainstream discourse now. Uh -huh. um, and it's less easily written off than it used to be. So that, that's got to be a good thing, right? Absolutely, yeah. It, it grows slowly, right? It, and it grows over time, and I think that that's happening, and it is really promising that those worlds are coming closer together, and particularly around farming. I think there's some really exciting progress there. It's really I, complicated, it, though. I mean, I imagine it's the same in Canada, but here in Wales, where, where I am, they're not necessarily helpful um, sheep farming, particularly in, in the north of Wales, which uh -huh. which has kind of tended to reduce the biodiversity of the Welsh upland. Um, the communities that are that are farming that land 
are Welsh-speaking, predominantly communities, and the Welsh language is is also under threat. It's been under threat for centuries from from England, from Anglicisation, from a, a poor understanding of the fact that Wales has a completely different culture <laughs> to right. England. So there's a need to protect, an urgent need to protect the human ecosystem and the linguistic ecosystem and all of the richness of this culture, which has been under attack, really, in a, in right. a, in a colonialist way from England for a long, long time. So we Wilders and people who are concerned to change those farming practices need to tread very carefully um, because there are understandable sensitivities uh, having kind of you know middle-class english people coming into these parts of rural wales and say you're farming wrong you know <laughs> you shouldn't right, be farming wrong. right so so it's a very delicate um political situation yeah that's so fascinating and what's really interesting to me is i've been interviewing a couple of times a regenerative sheep farmer near me here in my area i live in quebec canada and she has a regenerative farm and she's working to create like a local fiber shed with the sheep here. But she was talking to me in one of our interviews about how she has Welsh heritage and talking about that very same thing in particular around language and how much sort of tyranny there was around like using uh, the, I, I'm not an expert in it, but using the the Welsh language and the you know colonial relationship with England and making it really like where you know people were reporting their neighbors like just seeding all of this this fear and you know the opposite of of freedom for for people in Wales and that she was retelling this to me as you know a granddaughter or a great 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 granddaughter of people yeah, who yeah. lived that and she's now here and somehow found her way to uh, to being a shepherdess great <laughs> yeah so it's interesting hearing hearing that from from your perspective yeah it's, it's still very there. much a, li a live issue here but i mean i think in the end it's a good thing because it, it really does teach people and remind people not to be too strident and, and, and not to assume that you know your knowledge should um be privileged over other other forms of knowledge right and just, and just to go carefully you know another thing that seems endangered in the world is is, is subtlety <laughs> in general right <laughs> subtlety in right. culture and in discourse so i mean if, if it obliges you to kind of tread carefully and to take account of local sensitivities and, and you know actually kind of form relationships with the people that you're trying to engage then that's right. got to be a good thing too absolutely and it here it's very complex as you can imagine, uh, where there's this legacy of colonialism as well and, and genocide with indigenous yeah. peoples across the the country here. So that when, for example, uh, the environmental movement is saying like protect these farms from being paved over, for example, the question is okay, but protect them for who? Right. You know who? Like why? You know, it's like and it's it's admirable right like we don't want this to be paved over it's better for it to remain a farm or hopefully to protect uh, other more biodiverse ecosystems as well but then is are you protecting that for the the people that came a century ago as farmers as settlers as colonizers or are you protecting it for the original stewards of of the land so it's extremely 
um, complicated. And like you said, there's a lot of uh, subtlety and thoughtfulness that's required. I guess these issues are worldwide, aren't they? I mean, many of the same problems occur everywhere, kind of forced depopulation and forced migration. People taken off the land into cities, and we're sort of seeing the legacy of that in all sorts of different ways. And, and, and the difficulties that, that kind of modernity and industrialization have thrown up in terms of trying to well, reseed. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying to sort of um, find authentic ways of, of living with the land instead of you know, quite heedlessly just on it. Thanks for listening to Reseed and a heartfelt thank you to each of you that provide support to help sustain the podcast and cover our costs. It really means so much and goes so far. We're getting quite close to being able to cover our costs on a monthly basis. If you're able, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash Reseed podcast and give a few dollars a month. Even $5 would really mean a lot to us. This is a labor of love and every bit of support really helps to sustain our work. Thank you. I wanted to talk a little bit more about imagination, which you write about. I read that, you know, you said our opinions and behaviors are more managed than ever before with little room for imagination and perhaps free will, but we were not always like this. And then you reminisce about a childhood where you did enjoy more time for imagination. Could you talk to me about imagination in your, your life and writing? And do you see it connected to what we're talking about? Like this, this machine, this sort of, you know, colonization of many of us. I think of imagination as, uh, the thing that makes the world livable for us as human beings <laughs> it's it's kind of that that, um, that essential um it's the thing that mediates mind and world it's the creative faculty in which the world appears to us as human beings um obviously imagination has been belittled for a long time in the western rationalist tradition and it's being opposed to reason, which was good and orderly and masculine, <laughs> predictable. <laughs> yes. and, and imagination was written off as the opposite of all those worthy things. I think of imagination as essential. I think it's it, it's nothing less than that. It's the faculty by which the world gets represented to, to us as human beings. And without it, everything is disintegrated and what you have is phenomena you know what <laughs> what, right. what the philosophers call you know, phenomena but the phenomena aren't linked so i think of imagination as a as an organ of synthesis right perception itself is a synthesis right what we see is selective and what we filter out from our brains is selective <laughs> we don't see everything when we look at the field we we make selections right and rather than this being cause for woe because oh we can't we can't do justice to the world no that's the point it's like criticizing legs for walking you know that that's what it, <laughs> that's what it's that's what it's for like the fact that we select through our senses then we select through the brain and then we select when we're writing and we, we, we don't write everything we see we we try to fix this experience that we've had selectively by using language carefully this is 
a sensory faculty. It's a sense organ, <laughs> and without right. and without it, we just we're just adrift in the world. We're just a phenomenon ourselves, and there's no intrinsic connection between us and the other things that are out. What it brings up for me is what you said earlier about these, you know, regenerative farming or other practices that it helps us to see them because we do have this lack of imagination, I would say, just as a, you know, Western culture right now and uh, don't have a lot of time, you know, it it's doesn't seem that important or we don't have time for it or there are other things that are more urgent. And so without being able to imagine what other possibilities are, other futures, what are you left with? Just nothingness and kind of being swept away with the machine that's already in motion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, time is money, right? That's what Benjamin Franklin said, the founding father. Apparently, right. I, I found out recently that this quote apparently wasn't, um, he wasn't the first person to say it. It, kind of, it was in currency before then. Um, but it, it speaks volumes, I think, that one of the founding fathers of the United States right. would, would, would say this. And I just think it was a fine a fine and natural thing to come out with. Um, so time can be money. We've discovered this. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a partial truth. Um, but obviously, as, as you know, if we live as though time were only money, as though there were no other ways of relating to time, mm -hmm. then we're greatly impoverished. Yes, and I've seen suggestions about changing our language to, so that it's not so capitalist and looking at options like time is sacred. You know, like when you're trying to express the sentiment about how important time is, but without just falling into that same old thinking that we've been taught, oh, time is money. No, it's like, no, time is sacred. Time is precious. Yeah. And it can be multiple. We can have all at once. I mean, um, mm. I, I do talk about the tyranny of clocks in the book, but I, I, I like clocks. You know, who doesn't like clocks? I, I like a nice old clock. <laughs> I don't have any problems. Right. But, um, but clocks should be our instrument, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. right. um, so when, right. you, when you're walking in a in a natural landscape or as close to a natural landscape as it's possible to to walk through these days, yeah, you might be wearing a watch on your wrist and you might need to get back by a certain point to catch the bus or whatever. Um, so clock time is real. But when you're there looking at the trees and the trees are 200 years old and perhaps mm -hmm. if you're lucky, the landscape that you're walking through is essentially unchanged since the Mesolithic period something like you know you need to look at clock time with a certain amount of irony faced with that sort of situation and then you go home and you try to write about what you saw um and then uh -huh. of course as writers we're, we're we're caught up in narrative and we can do anything as writers you know we, you can make language speed up you can make it slow down you, mm -hmm. can, you can put it in reverse if you want to you can you can play in all sorts of ways and i think we need to be more playful um with our attitude mm. to time and i think the antidote to the machine in lots and lots of different ways and in lots and lots of different departments is play, playfulness mm. and a certain amount of irony about the claims that capitalism makes about what we are and what we're for. I love that so much. Uh, yeah, play, joyfulness, laughter, community, imagination. Like they sound light uh, and they are in a lot of ways and i think that's what's so so powerful about them is people people love them they fill us with joy they make us ourselves you know versus this like as you write the tyranny of clocks <laughs> yeah. which who loves that exactly 
um, one final thing, what you were talking about reminded me of something that happened to me a couple of months ago. Uh, I went up to visit my father, who lives on the northeast coast of England, and that landscape has been spared most of the intensive agriculture that much of the rest of the UK has fallen prey to. So we were actually talking about his childhood. I was sort of interviewing him as we were walking along. But it occurred to me as we were walking and we were bird watching as we went. And the, the species I mentioned earlier, the departed farmland species, the tree sparrows, the yellowhammers, the grey partridge, uh, were there, were there all around us. And I, I caught myself saying to him, you know, th this is like the landscape of the 1950s. But then thinking about it later, um, you can remove the word like. It, it actually was the landscape of the 1950s. Mm. You know, it, it's literally, right. it's, this isn't some kind of metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if everything is there, that was there in like, when my father was born in 1950, then again, that's something that puts clock time into a strange perspective. Right. Um, we, society has, you know, undergone lots of changes since then. But if the landscape has kind of uh, been spared all of these predations and degradations and depletions, then it's a very hopeful thing because mm -hmm. the past that you're trying to recover and the future that we're trying to get to through regen regenerative farming practices uh, is actually here. It, it's, it's still here. There isn't much of it, but, it, but it's here already. But it's here. So it, it's not something that needs to be won something that needs to be recognized and then sort of expanded right but, that's but it, powerful yeah that's what i thought <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and that that realization like this is this is the landscape it exists it's yeah and then like you say yeah, moving to protection of it how has with this tyranny of clocks how has birding maybe taken you away from that or reconnected you with cycles and seasons? Um, I guess just the obvious ways, but you know, the obvious ways shouldn't be shunned, right? The, the obvious ways right. are the, <laughs> power, the powerful ways. Um, so <laughs> just, just by taking myself out of the city and, and just by being alone in a forest or on a marsh or something, the habits of time that we've grown used to as adults fade somewhat, diminish, and maybe a different sort of relationship with time mm -hmm. and landscape, which can seem very pale and ghostly when you're in the city, resurfaces, is, is allowed to kind of hear itself think a little bit. Do you, do you see what I mean? Do, do you agree? I, I do. And I think that the obvious, like you say, the obvious things are not to be ignored. And I find it's so obvious, it's so basic, but any morning that I start by walking through the forest, like I live in the woods here. And if I start my day going through and walking and hearing the bird song and paying attention to how the leaves have changed in a day or the mushrooms that have popped up and hearing, hearing birds, hearing other creatures like in the leaves that I can't see, I am a happier human being that whole day. Like it changes my self and then i get all wrapped up in my zooms and my urgency and everything and i don't go it's right here the forest is here and i won't go and i'm all scattered and you know feel uh anxious and urgent and torn and all of these things and the answer is so obvious like you say it's like being alone with my dog and the other animals in the forest being a creature for a little bit you know being like an animal human 
creature and it's it, it, it does seem obvious but it's also like i don't know a, a birth right or a, like an intrinsic just part of who we are definitely and you we discover much happier rhythms don't you ways of being this this pinnacle that we put on put ourselves on as a species it did, didn't make us very happy deeply unhappy yeah it's a very lonely place to be but obviously we evolved you know, in, in in woods um yes we, we belong out there we are sort of biochemical ensembles and the world is a much bigger <laughs> biochemical ensemble and we're, we're connected right. in, all these, in all these wonderful ways that we're just starting to find out about now i mean this is very mm-hmm. much live science isn't it we're just discovering how you know how the smell of pine resin can clean the blood and all, all these sorts of and mm-hmm. about the, the, the wood wide web and how all the trees are connected by these mycelia and all of this has been discovered in the last few years and obviously the sadness is that we're discovering this stuff as we're losing a lot of it but it still must right. be a hopeful thing that you know science is science which has so long been an instrument of, of domination of the world is now kind of beginning to validate and support what a lot of people have felt instinctively for a long time about mm-hmm. how much good it does us to be out in the wild I wanted to ask you about your role as a parent and how you know you're a parent to three children you mentioned how do you see your role with guiding them in terms of their relationship with nature or do you see uh, a role in relation to their connection with the natural world well as you'll know yourself if you're at all didactic it's going to backfire <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you know, you've got a, that sort of subtlety we were talking about earlier. You've got to go slow, haven't you? Yes, yes. If I sit, <laughs> sit in a field, it's good for you. There's yes. nothing that's going to you know, get them online faster than that. Um, what have we done? We take them out as much as we possibly can. Uh, my wife and the kids are on the beach now. We're, we're blessed mm. to live close to some beautiful beaches. So they're out as often as we can take them out. We walk as, as much as we're able to. You know, just the household practices, just the recycling and the, you're trying not to waste water and this kind of stuff. You don't need to kind of tell them. that they, they watch what you're doing. And I think it's much more powerful as a parent, isn't it? If you lead by example, rather than by kind of laying down the law. It is a very different childhood. I was outdoors all the time as a kid. We lived in a, a cul-de-sac, so there wasn't any problem with traffic. It was a safe place to play out. Um, so I was out oh, you know, every single day, just kicking a sponge football around with my friends, or yeah. exploring the back alleys behind our, behind our homes. Uh, and that culture, at least here, seems to have gone. We're on a main road. Um, and, and kids just don't go out as much as they did. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a real problem. I don't know how it is in Quebec. Um, it's a big issue here that children don't spend as much time outdoors as they should. You know, there are some compensations. I think that they're much more educated about nature than we were. So at school, they will cover plastic pollution and they'll they'll draft letters mm-hmm. to the local MP saying that we shouldn't build this incinerator and we need to save the whale and we need to do this. So it's on the syllabus yeah. and it, it's talked about a lot, which is great. 
Um, but if that comes at the expense of actually being in nature, right? You know what I mean. They they, they need to experience it as well as have it on their their reading list, as it were. Right, and that's the joyful part of it is the being in nature. You know, like all of those other pieces are so important: the education and awareness and action. But the root of you know love for nature is that's why you're writing what you're writing, right? Like, yeah, is that origin of spending a lot of time with with the birds and the landscape that's it and, and they'll get there event. i mean you know ch children go in loops and they'll go away from it and they'll mm -hmm. come back to it and it's it's playing the long game really again we try not to be didactic about it um, yes. on the other hand I, I will never stop because i seem physiologically incapable of not saying <laughs> oh look there's a black cat oh did you see yes that? <laughs> and they're like dad sure. of course um, but they'll pick they'll draw from that like they'll see it and they'll remember bits of it and turn it into their own i i yeah i, I hope so i hope so and, and just yeah just seeing us seeing the value that we place on it will rub off on them i'm, I'm sure we, we, fa we fail we fail in so many ways all the time that's what parenting is it's yeah just a catalog of <laughs> <laughs> um, but you also learn as a parent don't you to sort of um round off your horizons and sort of your ideals are sort of tempered by reality. Mm -hmm. and, and in the end, maybe you'll get there by the back door. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, there's like the every single day that does have those failures, but I think there's the arc of it, the full arc. And I think that they will pull from that and remember certain things through, you know, like if, if nature is a theme over those 18 years, it will be in them and they will find it. And like you say, go, they'll leave it and come back to it and, you know, kind of find a way to interpret it for themselves. But I do think in the big arc of it that they, they will, that it'll influence them, right? Like how a family is will influence them. I, I really hope that they'll use it for relief. You know, what you were talking about earlier, how you feel when you, you take that early morning walk through the woods and, you know, what it gives you. Because, you know, I know this is a, a much discussed topic here at the moment, and I guess where you are as well, just how under pressure children are from, from technology, from the, the monetization of, of entertainment and, and all of this. Uh -huh. And it, it does sometimes seem like, you know, children's inner lives are abducted at such an early age um, and, and fed down mm. particular channels. So we try not to be censorious, like our kids... They, they spend time online and they, 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 they've of got course. a variety of different experiences. Um, but I hope that one of the things that the experience of our family life will give them when they are adults is if they're freaking out, if they if they feel depressed or if they feel harassed, that, that they will have they will know there'll be some sort of muscle memory. Okay, what I need to do is I need to go out by right. myself into the marsh, mm. into, into the woods. And, and that's the answer. And I think that that is like the, a better skill to equip them with is the ability to like enjoy screen time and being online and knowing how to stop it and go do other things instead of no, no screen time, because they're just going to be like you say, like they're fed down that path and it screens and the whole online world will be part of their experience. So being able to put boundaries around it, I think is more important than like a, you know, very righteous, no screens ever. 
Definitely, which isn't realistic anyway, at least not around here. No, it's all no, no, no. All no. friends are online. Yeah. Your writing is very poetic. I haven't made it through your whole book, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And that's actually why I invited you on. I saw somewhere someone had shared a quote from your book and uh, it was just like an exquisite sentence. And I was, yeah, it really affected me how how poetic and and lyrical, but also with some edges to it. Like I really loved the poetry. So wondering, do you see yourself as any bit of a poet? Do you, did you strive for that in the language? Does, does that come to you naturally? I'd love to hear a little bit more about poetry or poetic writing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Seamus Heaney once praised the Scottish poet um, Norman Mackay and he said, he said that what, what he liked about Mackay's poetry was that it was a, a, an amazing mix of strictness and susceptibility. So I have the susceptibility, but I don't have the strictness. So the reason, <laughs> the reason I can't be a poet is because I just don't have the, the mind for form. And I, I don't have the, the organizational skill and <laughs> the, the ear for line length and, and prosody that, that, that poets have. However, it's what you said, kind of clusters of sounds and rhythms of sounds do come to me very naturally, mm -hmm. particularly when I am outside. So I can be walking through a landscape and it's almost as though what I see comes with sounds attached. I, mm -hmm. I don't know how to describe it. It's because um, it's nothing, it's, it's not a talent. <laughs> it, it is a gift. <laughs> you know, I realize this is like a, it might seem like a hokey, hokey thing to say. Um, but because I don't know where it comes from, I've got no other way to describe it than as a sort of gift or a blessing or mm -hmm. grace. You have to resort to kind of religious, spiritual imagery because <laughs> you know because we we tend to speak in a in a rationalist way, and there's no way I can describe it in, in those terms in in everyday terms. So I can be looking at a, a finch or a, a fox or something, and very very often, if not a whole sentence, then like a, a combination of words will come that more or less matches what I'm seeing. Um, assonance plays a big part. So very often vowel sounds come into it a lot. And when I take my notebook out, when I'm walking, that's the kind of thing I, 90% of what I write down is those kind of just verbal, harmonious verbal clusters, if I can put it that way. And then mm -hmm. when I get home, if I, if I want to write it up into a piece of nature writing, um, then the critical faculty comes in and, and, and the rest of writing is me being very critical with myself and say that doesn't work, that's overindulgent, this, there's too much sound play going on over here and it, it kind of gets right. in the way of the experience instead of mediating the experience. But yeah, poetry is hugely important to me. I read a lot of poetry. I, I'm a poetry critic for a magazine and I'm very grateful that I am mm -hmm. because until that point I hadn't read a great deal of poetry my role as a reviewer for this magazine. It's called The Friday Poem. And I've had to become much more aware of particularly the British poetry scene and the Welsh poetry scene. And I'm just talking, you know, as we were earlier about rediscovering things in, in adulthood, I'm really rediscovering poetry um, these last couple of years. And I'm, mm. just, in, I'm just in awe of them. <laughs> I'm in awe of what they do. And I think it's incredibly necessary. I wouldn't kind of rank it in a hierarchy, but it's as necessary to me as as being in nature. It's, it's, mm. It has the same sort of health-giving properties in culture 
us going for a walk outside has in nature, <laughs> I think. And I, I wouldn't do without the attempts and the occasional successes to encapsulate experience in nature so well that it can be read with pleasure for generations and generations. It's a, a wonderful thing. Sorry, that Beautiful. was a very long-winded answer. It was not. It was beautiful. I was riveted and it makes me think about how poetry, it's like you were saying, you know, we belong in forests. There's also like a part of us that just belongs in poetry. And I feel right. like in hard, hard times and joyful times, the forest is there with, and when I say the forest, I mean the whole, the wholeness of, of that, including all the creatures and, uh, and poetry is there. And it just seems like such a human thing. And that when we're having hard human times, we come, come back to it. Uh, and also I have a, I have a poetry collection that I wrote uh, when I first moved to the woods here. It was just like poems. Like I, I just wrote poem after poem after poem, like being in this place for the first time and it's actually called my body made of birds so it was just like an interesting <laughs> yeah thanks is an interesting uh parallel for me so I, I find that so interesting uh what you what you said about poetry my last question is the question i always end on which is about ancestry and whether there's anything in your ancestry or family history that you think has impacted your your path in finding nature writing, for example, or finding birds? I don't know whether I think of myself as having found a path. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure. I'm one of these annoying nature writers who sort of disavows the title of nature writer. I'm not sure I want Okay. To <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll I'm make out. sure in the intro I don't <laughs> say nature writer then. Oh, no, it's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a writer, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I mentioned, I think, that my parents were pivotal in, like, um, encouraging my interest in, in birds mm -hmm. and wildlife generally, because it wasn't just birds by any means, at a young age. My grandparents, too. So my first pair of binoculars was given to me by my granddad, for, I think, my seventh, my maternal grandfather, for, I think, my seventh birthday. And although neither my maternal grandmother or grandfather Kind of went bird watching. They lived in a in a small village that was surrounded by farmland. So it was about an hour's drive from our family home in Birmingham. So we'd go up the motorway. Ironically, we were the first generation ever to experience the British landscape from a motorway. Mm. And of course, there's all sorts of complexities there because it ruined the landscape. But it was also the means by which we accessed the landscape. Everything is it's messed up, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, <laughs> we went to visit them. And, it is. And that was sort of our idea of the countryside. And they were very, they fed the birds in their back garden. They had, a, they had nest boxes for the blue tit, the chickadees, you call them, uh, the blue tits and the great tits <laughs> came, came to nest in the nest boxes. Um, and they always fed the birds. So there's that connection. My father's parents, my father's father was in the Royal Navy. Um, they grew up in the Northeast of England. And again, they living on the coast, they just lived closer to the land than certainly my generation and my children's generation does. So there were lots of fishermen in the family, so they'd go out on the ocean a lot. They grew their own vegetables. So there was just this kind of closeness with the land. If you go back a bit farther, I only found this out quite recently. I'd imagined that my, my mother's forebears lived in that part of England, North Staffordshire, you know, for, for centuries, 
but it turns out that rural depopulation and the movement to the cities, you know, also encompass my, my family story. So it, it turns out that um, on both sides of my family, people were uprooted from the land and from rural occupations, and they just followed the work during the Industrial Revolution. So most of my my great and great great grandparents were coal miners and steel workers and manual laborers. And I, I suddenly understood, not just as an abstraction in a history book, but from looking at my own genealogy, just what a big deal that was and just how mm-hmm. how large and uprooting that was. And in a way, they were fortunate because it was, it was more or less a voluntary uprooting. I mean, I know they needed to go to where the work was, but we're not talking about uh, the highland clearances or, or some of the you know genocidal displacements of Indigenous peoples that have happened elsewhere. But it makes you realise that it's kind of a universal story and that I think it's a very rare thing now if a family has occupied the same piece of land for centuries. We, we have this idea here, a uh, common idea, it's a myth, I suppose, that working class people are rooted on the land and have always been on the land. And the middle class is this kind of metropolitan, urbane elite, happy to live anywhere in the world. Right. Um, but that that was one of the, the myths that was challenged for me by discovering my family's history of sort of labor migration. And I realized mm-hmm. now that the, the working class has often been the class that's been displaced and, and taken away from the land. Mm. It's so true and so universal, like you said, right? Like that's a, a story that a lot of people have have lived. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for speaking with me and for your generosity of time and thought. So thanks so much for chatting with me, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's a pleasure to learn about what you do. Um, and it came completely out of the blue. I, I'd forgotten that my book was published in Canada. I, it just came, <laughs> it came out of nowhere. So it was, a, it was a lovely surprise. And it's been wonderful speaking with you. And, uh, oh, yeah, lovely speaking with you too. Hope you can uh, get out, uh, get outside, open up the windows and I'm, go enjoy. I'm going to the back garden right now. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay. That was today's episode of Reseed. I'd love to hear what you thought about our conversation. Reseed is created on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe land. Thank you to this place and to the indigenous peoples who have been stewards of the land for time memorial and now. A heartfelt thank you to Andrew Wallace for editing and for so much more. Without him, Reseed wouldn't be possible and it wouldn't be the same. Thank you to Marnie Wallace for original music on the ukulele. The theme music is by Dresden the Flamingo. Thank you to Rebecca Rivola de Kremer for podcast cover art and Tegan Akers for being an outside eye on the original concept. Thank you for listening. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers. Mm-hmm.